Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On the last program, I talked with Dr. Dennis Johnson about the Christian understanding of the relationship between faith and certainty. And in that discussion, we primarily focused on the sermons and apologetic speeches that we find scattered throughout the book of Acts. Though most of the contemporary Christians I recently interviewed seem to think of faith as a blind leap that can't really be explained, the earliest followers of Jesus, it turns out, seem to be saying nothing of the sort. Again and again, we found them pointing not to their own internal gut feelings or intuitions, but instead to objective criteria, to publicly known facts, and to evidence testified by numerous credible eyewitnesses, all of which served to confirm that which had been written centuries earlier throughout the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures. So now, on this episode, I'll be discussing a closely related topic, namely, what is the relationship between faith and proof? My conversation partner is Covenant Theological Seminary professor Mike Farley, and the primary focus of this conversation relates to the way that faith was elicited from the very beginning of the Bible's narrative. How, for example, did the Israelites come to believe that Moses really spoke with God, and how did his writings become so authoritative among the ancient Hebrew people? So as you know, I recently recorded a number of street interviews at a variety of Christian gatherings, and one of the common themes that came up in these conversations was this idea that faith isn't something you can prove. It's just something you know deep down inside. So on some occasions, I decided to ask a few follow-up questions, such as if I claimed to be a prophet sent by God, or even God himself, would the person believe me, or would they ask for proof? Listen to some of these responses. I'm asking like people here what they think faith is. I believe it's believing in something that you can't really see, but you know so deep in your heart that it's true. If I claim to be God, would you just believe me or would you ask to see proof? I'd say prove it. You'd say prove it? Yeah, we'd want to see your proofs. Yeah. I want to see the proof of who you really are. But is it impossible that you could just know in your heart that it was true or not true? I don't know. That's a good question, though. If I said I was God, would you just believe me, or would you want to say, prove it? 
Uh, yeah, because we're flesh. But is that a bad thing to ask to prove it? Oh, no. I don't think it's a bad thing. But then that kind of messes with your faith. You know? So do you think faith and proof are two different things? That is. It is. If I claimed to be God, would you immediately believe me or would you want proof? I would have to have a little proof. <laughs> but faith, you know... You are, are faith and proof similar? The thing is, when you believe, it becomes proof. Because he proves himself to you. How do you know that Jesus is the right way, as opposed to all the other options? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it is the way I was raised. Like, I think that's, I'm not saying that's a good reason why, but I think that, like, having grown up to believe this, but then experiencing it myself and, you know, having that connection with Jesus, I, I feel like... You know, that's one thing that points me to Christ. But I also think there's unique characteristics of Christianity, servant leadership, dying to self, uh, loving others. So so I have talked to Muslims who will say something similar. They say, you know, I, I was raised a Muslim and I just know it's true because of the effect it's had on my life and my family. So is there something more that Christianity offers in contrast to that, given that they're the same answer? Well, I think when you boil it all down, you're going to have to come to this point where it's like, okay, faith is believing in things unseen. Like there's, there may be things that point us in that direction, but at some point you're going to have to have some type of belief that I believe he's there and I, you know, I, and I believe in him. But if I said I, I'm Joseph Smith and I actually have just written a book and it's the word of God, would you trust me? In that instance, no, because I have other things that point to that not being true. Yeah. So in that case, are you saying doubt is a good thing? I think doubt, like, that's a hard question. Like, I think that doubt in some capacity is a good thing. If I told you that I was God, would you believe me or would you want me to prove it? It's a tricky question. <laughs> I know it's a tricky question. Uh... What in your view is faith? What is it? Um... I don't know. What do you think? You just know. You just yeah. gotta follow it. That's just it. Just know. You just gotta follow it. Follow what you think is your faith. Is faith better than doubt? Uh, yes, definitely. So, what if Joseph Smith comes to you and says, "I'm a prophet"? Should you believe him because faith is better than doubt? I don't know. How about Muhammad? You say you must be a prophet because you said so. I don't know. I'm on the spot. I'm just kind of hard. I don't know. <laughs> I was kind of caught off guard. Why do you have faith in Jesus and not like all the other religions? Or why the Bible and not the other books? It's just a feeling that I always had. Like, growing up, I just had a connection to him. And it was just a relationship that I had with him. It wasn't something forced. I just believe in it. Yeah. And I think that that's what faith is, believing in something that you don't know is for sure. So it's not for sure. What do you do with the Moses scene, the burning bush? Moses says, you want me to go tell the people that I'm really sent by God? They're not going to believe me. And then God says, I'll give you a sign. And then they don't believe that, I'll give you another one. And those are going to confirm the word. So then there's kind of a proof thing there, isn't it? I mean, yes. Um, what's interesting, though, is like the outcome of that situation was going to happen regardless if the people believed it or not. Uh, and I think it's silly if people like require that much proof. And like, I have faith. Well, first of all, you're talking about proof and proving to someone to prove who God is. You think that those don't really go together with faith? That faith is more of like this leap to, yeah. Well, I remember when I went forward at an altar call, I wasn't looking for proof 
the music, everything there staying on stage was like I was the only person there. I knew without a doubt that was the missing piece. So do you think faith is knowing in your spirit? Yes. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this program, my guest for today's episode is Dr. Mike Farley, who is the Visiting Professor of Applied Theology at Covenant Theological Seminary. To get our conversation started, I first played a number of street interviews that you've heard on this and previous episodes, and I asked Dr. Farley what he thought about the way these Christians had responded to my questions about faith. We definitely heard some some common themes and threads through a lot of those responses. Uh, you know, the obvious one is how often people talked about a feeling as the mm-hmm. thing that gave them the conviction that what they believed was right. You know, and I, I think I want to start by saying faith is much more than simply believing a set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are aspects of our faith also that involve things we can't see physically with our eyes at right. this time. So there yeah. are threads of truth in what they're saying. Uh, But what's really striking is how much each person seems to draw a distinction between relying on feelings versus relying on rational ideas or... or, Yeah, one uh, respondent said it's not cognitive. Right. So in other words, we are trying to say faith is rational. It's trusting in the God who has revealed himself, Mm -hmm. which involves both the mind and the heart. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the answers that we heard, it was, seems like it was only the heart, only something internal and subjective. Mm-hmm. It's it's as if the uh, the, the problem uh, of the Reformation period has swung entirely to the opposite end of the pendulum. You know, many of the, the Reformation creeds and writings about the nature of faith stress that faith is both a knowledge that one has with the mind and a trust that one has with the heart. And and here it's as if those have been pulled apart in a lot of these responses. You know, yeah. we, we simply have feelings divorced from the mind, uh, divorced from truth. The appeals in the Bible again and again are to trust in what we cannot see on the basis of what we can see. Yeah. I mean, a great example that I think of is Thomas. Thomas. Yes basically refused to believe in the testimony of his fellow compatriots. He doubted the resurrection of Jesus and finally was given an opportunity to see with his own eyes and to touch the risen Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And this isn't an encouragement of blind faith in the sense of not having any information. I mean, John, as he describes that scene, goes on to say, but these are written so that you may believe. In other words, John's gospel itself is the written deposition of all the eyewitness testimony. Yes. And faith comes through the hearing of that report. Yes. And so that it's not without reliable testimony. And I love that episode with Thomas because we often, I think, think of that episode with Thomas as Jesus scolding Thomas. Yeah. As if he shouldn't have been asking that kind of question in the first place. But the story itself, actually, I think is the opposite. It shows just how how gracious Jesus is to meet Thomas with precisely the kind of reason that he needed yeah. uh, in that moment. And, and it was a reason that was as tangible as you could get. Yeah. You know, put your finger here. Touch my physical body. 
And he really did that for all of the disciples. You know, we had several weeks after his resurrection with multiple appearances Mm -hmm. in which he's not just giving them a disembodied voice. He's not giving them a written note that he left behind. He shows up in person in the flesh in ways that, as John said, they can see and touch and handle and encounter uh, with with all of their senses in a very external, you know, way. Yeah. And so basically he's saying, when he tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Basically, he's saying he's not going to do this to every future person who doubts. Yes. I mean, this is what Peter says in Acts 2. Uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles were raised up for this purpose, to witness to all that they saw and to confirm the message of the prophets. Yes. Yes. So in the... um in the same way that you see in, in other patterns of the Bible, God at, at certain key moments in time and history gives very discernible signs and evidences of his reality to eyewitnesses. And then future generations are, are given a, a confirmed testimony of, of those signs and those historical uh, encounters with God that they can trust on the basis of those eyewitness episodes yeah. and, and signs and evidences that God gave. And, and when you compare that to some of the material that you find in these street interviews, some of the answers, faith in some ways is, is contrasted with proof, right? There are a lot of people who think of faith as that sort of gap. The evidence gets you so far and faith bridges that gap. What kind of criticism would you give to that kind of way of seeing faith? You're right. It is it is actually a, a fundamental feature of the way that lots of thinkers since the Enlightenment period, mm-hmm. particularly in the 18th century, have thought of faith and reason as being increasingly divorced from one, one another. <laughs> Mark Twain has a famous quote that, you know, faith is believing something that you know isn't true. Yeah, right. Um, in his tongue-in-cheek manner. But he's, he's simply echoing themes that have been around in our yes. culture for a long time now. And, it, and, and it's distressing to me to hear the extent to which the language of Christianity's chief critics now being echoed in the language of the very ways that Christians are defining what faith is. But the key problem, I think, with that kind of divorce is that it really gets fundamentally wrong what the Bible is encouraging us to do when it calls us to believe. Uh, The kind of trust that the Bible's calling for is the kind of personal trust that you have in a person on the basis of what you know about them. Right. Uh, If I have trust in a doctor... I I demonstrate my trust in a doctor by submitting myself to his or her care. The trust is about the way I'm personally responding to the doctor, but I don't make blind decisions about which doctors to trust. I make a decision about uh, a doctor who has the right specialty and the right competency, and, uh, and, and it's on the basis of what I do know about the doctor, you know, his or her skills and expertise and knowledge, that I can then engage in the action of trusting myself to their care. I mean, there's a fundamental difference, I think, between when I go to a doctor and when I have a relative who gives me like some homeopathic remedy, you know, mm-hmm. I may be a little distrustful. I might not even take the remedy. And if I do, I'm skeptical. Mm. And I think that's a healthy thing, right? Yeah. Skepticism. I don't just know in my heart that what she's saying is true or not true, but I might research this. Well, when I go to the doctor, I kind of have a little bit more trust because this person has been schooled. Mm-hmm. Then there's still another layer because I have gone to the doctor who has given me medications that I trusted so much that I swallowed <laughs> and it didn't help. <laughs> Have you had this experience? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. So in other words, the faith has to be in line with the object, right? And in one case in particular, I'm thinking of, I took a, a drug called hycosamine because I was feeling pain in my gut and the diagnosis was that my 
intestines were squeezing at the wrong time, causing pressure. And he gave me this drug. And it turns out I had a gallbladder problem. And a different doctor who did a little bit more investigation, ran different tests, said, hmm, it looks like you have an improperly functioning gallbladder. When I had that removed, my pain went away. Hmm. So I trusted both doctors, but only one actually worked. You know, if I trust the God of the Quran, you know, I may have all the belief in the world, but if it's the wrong holy book... (laughs) then it's not the quality of my faith that saves me. It's actually the object of my faith that's the heart of it, isn't it? Yes. You're having faith didn't solve your gallbladder problem. Right. But it was involved because I had to take the prescription of of both doctors to kind of get there. But having faith in, you know, itself didn't solve the problem. Yeah, and, and that describes really both both sides of, of the Bible's understanding of faith. You have to personally respond to the doctor. If right. you had refused all the doctor's treatment, right. you wouldn't have gotten well. Uh, but the doctor's treatment was, had to be based in objective realities yeah. about what was going on in your body. Faith is faith in something yeah. or, or, or in someone. And, and everything depends upon the trustworthiness and the credibility of the thing or the person you're trusting in. Yeah. And I think very similarly, that's the kind of trust that God's calling for us to offer him. Um, he gives us reasons and evidences to know that he's real and trustworthy, and therefore calls us to make a personal response to that. But that kind of faith is faith that's on the basis of reason. Uh, it's the way we personally respond to uh, the truths that we're given to be able to know with our minds and to be able to understand in a rational way. So what I'd like to do for this program is to kind of start at the beginning in the Old Testament. And the the text that I'd like us to sort of land on right now is uh, Exodus chapter 3. And this is the scene where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Yes. And in Hebrew, it's actually the burning thorn bush. Moses sees this and he hears the voice of God saying, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And God calls Moses to become his ambassador, really, uh, for this coming plan of redemption and liberation for the people of Israel. Now, Moses, he's taken aback by this, and he's not really confident in his own power of persuasion. He's also wondering whether people will believe what he's saying, mm-hmm. particularly because yes. he's just been having a conversation with a bush. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he says, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Exodus 4, 1. And so God doesn't rebuke Moses for asking this question, does he? No, not at all. God responds to Moses's concerns by giving him external, very tangible signs that he will be able to display to the people that are very clearly miraculous kinds of events that that clearly reveal that there is a supernatural power, divine power that's at work in Moses and and through Moses that will confirm what he's saying. It'll prove and it'll confirm. Yes. In fact, that language is there. God specifically says to Moses, if they will not believe you or pay attention to the evidence of the first sign, notice there's believing Mm -hmm. on the basis of evidence, then... They may believe the evidence of the last sign. You know, he's going to give sign after sign after sign until they're convinced. And that is a great place to start, I think, when you're helping people to see that belief is rooted in objective considerations, not merely subjective. Yes. There's a subjective component to faith. Yes. But it's not the foundation. It's a fruit of faith, but not the root. Yes. My faith is always faith in someone, something. That's right. So Moses, we're told, did finally report all that God revealed to the elders of Israel. 
And he performed the signs in the sight of the people, just as God instructed. And the result was that the people believed, Exodus 4, 29 through 31. So yes. the signs confirmed the word. Think about how this approach is similar to what Jesus does in the Gospels, where you know he declares that he has forgiven the sin of the paralytic, for example, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I declare to you, rise up and walk. So he heals the man with a visible sign that confirms the word of the invisible reality. Yeah, and even in another episode in John 10, when he's again having a an argument with the Pharisees about his credibility as a spokesman for God, he actually appeals to his own signs as part of the evidence that would confirm his authority. He says in John 10, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Yeah. So even if you don't find me initially trustworthy, look at what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Look at the, the the tangible evidence of the works that you can see with your own eyes before you. Trust in that because that confirms the truthfulness of who Jesus is and what he's saying. That's why they're called signs and wonders, isn't it? Because the wonder is just like, whoa, this is crazy. But a sign points to something. The sign points to the reality. You don't go to the the sign that says St. Louis 45 miles and say, okay, I've arrived. It's pointing to something that's further away with an objective reality. Yes. And in the same way, Jesus will perform a sign that testifies to a greater reality. It was an amazing thing that he calmed the storm and nobody in the boat that day, but after he calmed the storm said, wow, you know, Jesus, I have storms in my life (laughs) that need calming. And I'm wondering if you could help with that. Uh, It was a sign that testified, whoa, who is this that can even calm the storm? Yes, they're left with questions about who he is. Who is this that can do this? And that, yeah, that's what the signs do. Now there's another scene in Exodus 7 this time, it's not the people of Israel that Moses is going to go before. It's actually Pharaoh himself. Yes. God says to Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Again, external confirmation for this idea that Moses and Aaron are God's ambassadors. But if you think about that scene compared to what we heard that Well, faith isn't something you can prove. You would think that would have been something God would have said. Well, when Pharaoh says, prove to me that you are, you know, spokesman for God, you shall tell him, faith isn't something you can prove. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. You'll just have to believe, Pharaoh. Yeah. You'll just have to believe. You just have to believe. And, you know, if you don't, you know, it's not going to go well with you. And nowhere does he say, you will know this is true. Pharaoh will know this is true. The elders of Israel uh, will know it's true because I will give them a spiritual sixth sense, you know? <laughs> right. That's, that's right. something extra. <laughs> right, right. And, and as the narrative goes on, the external signs only grow in their objectivity in a right. sense. You know, as yeah. Moses eventually does lead the people out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness where in a sense, the whole nation gathered before Mount Sinai has their own sort of version of hearing directly from God in the way that Moses had at the bush. So it wasn't just that there was a singular episode in which Moses said, I had this encounter, here are the signs. He leads the people and the the whole nation as such is able to witness God 
revealing himself in a visible, tangible, audible yeah. uh, way. Multi-sensory. That would, that, that would be, yeah, this is the <laughs> ultimate multimedia event mm-hmm. uh, happening on Mount Sinai. It would have been undeniable to conclude that this was the God who had revealed himself to Moses. This was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he's speaking audibly and providing undeniable supernatural signs uh, to the whole people. So, so in a sense, God continues to confirm and confirm and confirm what he says in the signs that he's giving that can be seen and known and tested. It seems clear that there is such an overwhelming objectivity to it all from the very beginning that I'm just, I'm struck by it again and again whenever I read these passages carefully. Yeah, this whole section really does raise the very question that you were trying to pose to some of the people in your interviews, because as soon as Moses and Aaron start displaying some of these signs, you get counterfeit signs that happen right alongside Mm -hmm. them. Uh, Certain Egyptian uh, officials and magicians came out to also do impressive things right alongside as, as a way to try to discredit the trustworthiness of Moses and Aaron uh, and, and what they were saying. So right away, uh, we're confronted in these stories with not just competing claims, uh, competing words, but with competing signs. Yeah, uh, and, and it was only by continuing to put to the test what Moses and Aaron were saying and who they were over against the the Egyptian officials who were trying to discredit them. It's only as they continued to test and and demonstrate visibly and tangibly uh, the signs that God gave them, which got in, you know increasingly public, increasingly drastic as you go over the course of all these plagues that that come upon the Egyptian nation. That always used to kind of disturb me. I mean, the first time I interacted with these texts, I was actually reading them in a Jewish household. Mm. I, I converted later. But I remember being underwhelmed by like, this is God, and he's saying, throw it on your staff and it'll become a serpent. It's like, you know, you're the God of the universe. Don't you have better (laughs) tricks up your sleeve? Yeah, like the heavens parting and and the skywriting that says, you know. (laughs) But the thing is, that kind of thing does happen. Yes. And it's kind of like the beginning notes of a symphony where it's like this very understated note that then grows to become this grand crescendo with the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, the people of Israel see it all, and so do the Egyptians. And, you know, in fact, it says many of the Egyptians were so convinced uh, that some of them joined the Israelites. It was a mixed multitude that actually left Egypt. Yes, that's Um, right. Sometimes I've heard theologians and apologists talk about the presentation of the Old Testament as it begins. It doesn't sort of begin with an argument. You know, it just states in the beginning God spoke the world into existence. Yes. Uh, but the way I think about that now, I'm, I'm not persuaded by that line of reasoning. I, I kind of tend to look at the book of Genesis as a prologue to what happens here at Exodus and this, this, the Exodus event. It's, this is all the history of the people, but it's Moses who's doing the writing, and just this is the background, but it's being delivered to this people who has been here <laughs> and seen God and heard yes. God and felt God and been terrified by God and walked through the parted Red Sea, they didn't need arguments for God. (laughs) Yes, yes. The first audience for the book of Genesis is the nation of Israel that yeah. comes out of Egypt. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's right. And, and much of the book of Genesis is there to explain to Israel who they are. Yeah. To explain to Israel exactly. wh- wh- where did they come from and what did God do to actually make them a, a distinct people? And what is their distinct calling in the world uh, to serve the larger purposes of God's uh, rule over, over the whole creation? Now, uh, as I look at Exodus 19, verse 9, God, as he's speaking to Moses, says, 
Behold, I am coming to you in thick darkness, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. I think that's really interesting. Yes. A lot of people don't really focus on the weight of this passage, but that conversation that God has, that the people here, remember they say, Moses, you talk to us. We don't want to hear from God because whenever he's speaking, we just feel like we want to die. But when they hear God speaking with Moses, this is no longer just a report confirmed by signs. They actually hear it themselves. They are terrified in this moment. They hear God's voice audibly. Yes. But it's the fact that God is speaking with Moses that really helps them to see he is God's ambassador. Yes. In a fact, sense, the, the events at Mount Sinai actually go out of their way to, to demonstrate this. They, the nation hears God collectively and sees the events, um, hears the, the trumpet and the, sees the, the cloud and, and, and everything that had led them. But then that revealed presence of God calls to Moses. And before all the people, Moses ascends to the top of Sinai to be very visibly singled out as, as, as the one to whom God will reveal himself in a way that then comes forth in the, the revelation that Moses then brings to the people. The word that I like to call out here in Exodus 19.9 is this word forever. Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Yes. That forever is, I think, intended for the entire people of Israel and their descendants to say, Moses is going to be the ambassador. He's the beginning of what becomes the Bible. He, he's the author of the first five books of the Bible. And his writings are going to have a lot of weight and authority in your community. This first generation saw it with their eyes. They, they heard it. They were terrified. They didn't doubt that these things were real. But this is also why they will believe what he writes and what they pass on, because these things really happened. Yes. In other words, this is the beginning of biblical authority. There's Absolutely. an authoritative uh, weight to this particular text. The five books of Moses have authority because these events testify to the people of Israel, he is believable. <laughs> he is my, yes. He's my servant. Yes. Yes. And there are multiple places in the Pentateuch where it refers to uh, Moses writing um, it, it's clear that one of Moses's roles as God's spokesman is to write things down. In fact, he comes down from Mount Sinai having things that God actually wrote for him uh, uh, to communicate. So the idea that that these episodes that happen in history to particular people at particular times and places, testimony about those events are going to be written down, and that itself is part of a part of Moses's calling. Yeah, uh, and so you're right. So the, so these events, which by definition future generations will not experience in the same way, are going to be committed to writing. And, yeah. and so, so absolutely, all of these external signs are there to confirm the word that future generations will receive and be able to test as, as the word of God. Which is similar to the scene where Thomas doubts, he sees with his eyes, and then Jesus says, you've seen and you have believed, but blessed are those who will hear this report and believe. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of yes. putting it in my own yes. way, but that's what John ends up saying. Exactly. Uh, these are written so that you may believe, which is what Moses does, and the future generations of Israel yes. believe Moses' writings. I mean, there's a, there's a whole big question of whether this, the entire thing is fiction mm -hmm. or whether it's you know, like, why should we believe this incredible 
thing that happened at Mount Sinai is really real. Yes. Uh, that's a different question and something we'll be pursuing on this show. Is there even evidence that there were Semitic people in Egypt? Yes. And are there any evidences that this is a fictional text or an authentic text? That's a different question. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do today is just look at the the claims being made in the text. And the claim being made is this is reliable and this is authoritative because it was it was demonstrated to be so. It was confirmed in the sight of many eyewitnesses, yes. the, the entire nation. Yeah. So I think we're, we're trying to show that internally in the Bible, there is a pattern of appealing to externally testable signs as a means that confirm the truth of what's being claimed. This is not, the, in other words, the Bible is not presenting itself as simply a word that drops out of heaven that's simply to be believed because it's there. Um, the Bible is is already anticipating the question, why should we believe this word? Uh, why should we believe this claim? And it's showing us that God wants to establish a, a basis in reality for us yeah. to be able to trust the word, uh, to be able to trust the objectivity of his work in a way that, that manifests his reality in a way we can understand. You know, that idea that this is a kind of a book fallen from heaven is there in some of the ancient Greek writings, you know, sing, O muse, the yes. anger of Peleus' son. This is the beginning of the, I think it's the Iliad. Yes. Or, uh, you know, Hesiod's divine theogony. Mm-hmm. I taught some of these texts when I was a classical school teacher, and uh, I was struck by the fact that it's the muse, the goddesses who are speaking to the person, and that's how you can know mm-hmm. that this is divine. And it's very similar to the sort of God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, it's my faith, ultimately, that this is a divine text that gives me the assurance this is God's word. That's why we trust it. Yes. The question is, was it just a claim to be God's word, or is it demonstrably so? Yes. And what we're arguing is that from the very beginning, this wasn't simply a bare claim, but it was confirmed to be an accurate claim. Yes. There's a consistent pattern in the Bible in which God validates right. the, the question, is this true? And how would I know that it's true? Uh, the internal pattern of the Bible is is affirming that that's a legitimate question, and it's one it's inviting us to ask. Uh, so the Bible's not only re- telling us truths about God, it's also revealing to us the means and a certain process by which we can come to know and to know reliably. Yeah. That's such an important point, because I think that's a strategy we can use with people you know, the Bible invites us to ask these questions and doesn't shame us for our doubts. Yes. In fact, it says, do not believe every spirit, every claim. Test the spirits to see whether they're of God. The simple man believes everything, but the wise man gives thought to a step. So discernment and mm-hmm. being uh, suspicious of those who would speak for God with a false claim, we should do that. In fact, the Bible itself gives criteria, doesn't it? for evaluating whether future prophets should be trusted, right? And what yes. are those criteria? Yes, yes. I think this is fascinating that, that the Bible is not only claiming that God revealed himself in a way to Moses and gave signs to authenticate Moses as an authoritative spokesman, but also gives us a process by which future writings, future words from God will actually also be able to be authenticated. And we see that there are a couple passages in the book of Deuteronomy uh, that are especially pertinent here because they, God gives us these passages as a way to help the people test uh, the, the words that, that are given by prophets claiming to speak for God. Yeah. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it says that even if a person should come doing miraculous signs, 
even if a person should do those kinds of signs, and then they go on to say, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, then the text says, you shall reject that person as a false prophet. Yeah. So the appeal here, first of all, is a test to compare what the prophet is saying with prior revelation yeah. that we have reason to trust. So if we have good reasons to believe what Moses said, then all future revelation needs to be tested against the authentic words that were confirmed through Moses. So, so there's a kind of test of orthodoxy here. Yeah. If future writings come from the same God who revealed himself to Moses, then those future writings, those future words and revelations must be consistent with what came before, yeah. uh, because God does not lie and cannot lie. And just as with Moses, there were those who performed wonders, these magicians yes. who were able to do some level of miraculous or you know magical kind of yes. uh, things that, that looked like wonders. Uh, but they certainly didn't amount to what the 10 plagues <laughs> yes, grew yes. into be in that grand crescendo. Yes. But Jesus too will say there will be false prophets who perform amazing wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Yes. So we need to be on our guard. It's not only the sign, mm -hmm. but it's also what is this particular sign pointing me to? Is it pointing me back to Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Moses and all the other inspired prophets? Or is it leading me to some other destination <laughs> yes. altogether? Yes. There, there's a kind of test of consistency here mm -hmm. uh, that, that if you come along claiming to speak in the name of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then what you say needs to be consistent with, with the other revelations that have come from Yahweh over time. And so you have a sort of process by which God continues to confirm the truthfulness of what he's saying with multiple revelations that occur over long periods of time to multiple people, but all have this internal consistency. Yeah, uh, th That itself is another sort of objective marker we can point to, to say, and that's what must be present, that there must be consistency between what a prophet claims and, and, and what God has revealed before. You know, I love thinking about that idea in relationship to some of Jesus' own words. You know, he doesn't say, I'm the new thing now. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, Moses wrote of me. You seek the scriptures thinking that they have, you know, the words of eternal life, but these are the texts that speak of me. So he has been in the text from the beginning. In some cases, if you actually read what Moses wrote, Jesus isn't only hinted at, Jesus is actually there doing the talking. He's the angel or messenger of the Lord who's sent by Yahweh but speaks as Yahweh <laughs> uh, in many, many texts in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying he is not coming up with something completely new. There is a newness to the New Testament, but there's also this consistency from the beginning with what Moses has revealed from, yes. from the first days. As, as uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Yeah. yeah that, in other words, he's saying there is something new in the sense that this is a new chapter, mm -hmm. but it's a new chapter in the same story. Yes. Uh, it's the same consistent, unfolding, unified story that started to be revealed all the way back with Moses and that has unfolded through multiple spokesmen. And now in Jesus, we can see the consistency of what God's been doing over century after century. Jesus is not pitting his authority against the rest of Scripture, but rather just the opposite, uh, claiming that he should be believed in, in part because what he's doing is act can actually be demonstrated to be the works of Yahweh, the works that people should be able to recognize as the works of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. There were times in which I was troubled by the Trinity in a sense in which 
it's kind of embarrassing. It's it, mysterious. I don't know how to explain mm -hmm. it. Uh, I just rather not talk about it. <laughs> but the longer I've spent sort of reflecting on the way Genesis in particular is conveyed, and Moses writes this text, both Genesis and Exodus, in some passages where Yahweh is, there are two Yahwehs in the passage. Mm. So I interviewed once a Jewish scholar by the name of Daniel Boyarin, mm. Talmud professor at the University of Berkeley. And he was saying that Jews before the time of Christ, uh, many of them believed in the mystery of those passages and others like it. Yes. Uh, one of the texts he focuses on is Daniel 7, where you have two divine figures in the passage. One is the Ancient of Days, and the other is like unto a son of man. Mm -hmm. But it's a divine figure because he comes before the Ancient of Days and receives a, an eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. This is not an ordinary king. Mm -hmm. Yes. We often miss the direction of what's happening in that Daniel 7 text. It's not that this Son of Man figure coming down out of heaven, it's the Son of Man figure ascending yeah. to the throne of the ancient days and taking up his place with the ancient of days to rule in only in a way that can only be described as divine, yeah. with divine authority over all of creation and all the nations of earth. And so I, I started doing some research, like even the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, there are a number of, a number of texts, but sometimes even those that were alluding to the Isaiah 53 passages, the suffering servant, it was referring to that suffering one as a divine Messiah who suffers and dies and atones for sin. Not everything is, uh, is fleshed out in exactly the way that later Christians would, but it was very clear that these Jews before the time of Jesus were actually coming up with a theology that would not be terribly far removed from what became Trinitarian Orthodoxy. Yes, yeah. There, there are hints about this kind of plurality within God, that somehow there are distinctions of not so much persons, it's not quite revealed that explicitly, mm -hmm. but there are hints that there are somehow relationship and different yeah. agents that function as God uh, in the world. God's In some passages, it's the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. In some passages, it's the Word of God. In some passages, it's the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, all of whom in some ways are distinguished from Yahweh and yet are Yahweh at the same time. Uh, yeah. There's a mystery here that the Old Testament doesn't quite spell out for us, but there are all kinds of hints of that kind of plurality. That's and that's there. the nature of biblical revelation that's progressive. So what you find here in seed form yes. grows to become this amazing, beautiful, tall oak, you know, in the, by the time of the New Covenant. Yes. And that is a wonderful way to sort of be immersed in biblical theology. You know, it's, this is the same message. Yes. But yes. in seed form over here, and then with the culmination of all things down the road. Yes, that's right. Now, what's the second criteria that we find in the book of Deuteronomy? So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a passage that appeals to the power of predictive prophecy. Uh, in this passage, uh, God is saying that there will be other prophets who come, and the way that you will know the truthfulness of what these future prophets will say is whether or not the predictions that they make come to pass. So uh, it says here, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how will we know if a prophet is false? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. So in this case, the expectation is that future prophets will come and they will make predictions that are able to be tested. In other words, there'll be predictions that are about short-term events that will happen in the near future in a way that people will be able to tell did what the prophets say happen or not. Uh, so predictive prophecy here is the second test 
after consistency and orthodoxy, we have this test of here in real time, can we observe that what this prophet is saying to us here and now, do his words come true? And when they did come true, that person was then respected in the community of Israel as a prophet. And in some cases, we have prophets who don't have any books, like Nathan. Yes. Although I think there is a reference to a book of Nathan that would be really cool if we <laughs> found someday. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but what we find is, um, like, why, why did King David trust Nathan as a prophet? Well, obviously, he had to have vindicated or confirmed his office as a prophet somehow yeah. in a way that's not even recorded for us. But clearly, in the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, you have all these references to false prophets. Well, those false prophets' writings were not treasured and kept in the canon, yeah. whereas Isaiah's writings and Ezekiel's and Jeremiah's were, because they were pre-qualified, kind of like when you're pre-qualified for a loan, you know, <laughs> that you're trustworthy to the banker. In the same way, the canon grows. First, it starts with the five books of Moses, mm -hmm. and then things get added to it over time mm -hmm. because they qualify according to the criteria here of Deuteronomy. The community kept adding things that were just as authoritative as Moses' writings. Yes. Because they had been confirmed as authoritative. Yes. Not because, well, I just feel in my heart I've got to add this, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So the, the assumption is because God is working in history and will continue to work with generation after generation after generation, future generations are going to need certain kinds of tests to be able to know yeah. how is God's progressive revelation continuing to unfold and how will we recognize it when it happens? Um, and it, you see this pattern all the way through, even to, to use the example of Nathan that you used. Uh, there's an episode where David commits adultery with Bathsheba and she bears a son. And Nathan comes to confront David about his sin and sexual abuse of, of Bathsheba and predicts that the child will die. And the child dies, mm -hmm. you know. So, so there, there's just one small example of how a prophet authenticates this word from God that came in rebuke to David was authenticated by a sign that could be immediately tested, yeah. a, a prophecy. Uh, the same thing is true with, the, say, the Samuel. Samuel, even as a boy, receives a revelation from God, and the revelation comes with a predictive prophecy. Uh, the high priest Eli and his sons will perish mm. because of their, the abuse of their office. And sure enough, in a short period of time, they all die, just as, as Samuel had said. We could go on. There are multiple yeah. examples here. Uh, Elijah says to King Ahab, there will be no rain, and there's no rain for three years. Right. I mean, it's, it's easily, again, the same quality of this public, observable, testable claim, just like we saw with Moses at Sinai, the same kind of confirming signs continue to happen through these predictive prophecies. The interesting thing about Nathan is that that famous passage in 2 Samuel 7, where he comes to David, well, actually David comes to him and says, you know, I live in this amazing palace and God lives in a tent and it shouldn't be this way. I want to build an amazing temple for God. And then Nathan says, sounds great. Let it be as you say. But then later God speaks to Nathan and the next day he comes back saying, actually, God has a different plan. <laughs> He's yes. going to build you a temple. And that, to me, says something about the nature of the prophets in the Old Testament. They spoke occasionally. They were human men who were occasionally given inspired speech, but not everything that they said was inspired. But Jesus, on the other hand, wasn't just sort of called to speak God's words on occasion. He was God in human flesh. And he's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The fundamental difference there, isn't there? Yes.
Folks, be sure to join us for the next episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I continue my conversation with Dr. Mike Farley of Covenant Theological Seminary. Folks, for more information about this podcast, simply head to humbleskeptic.com. And if you're a fan of the show, please share episodes with friends and family and consider writing a positive review via the Apple Podcast app. If you'd like to help keep this show afloat, you can do that by either making a one-time gift or by becoming a paid subscriber through Substack. And you can find links for either of those options in the show notes section of this episode. Thanks so much for joining me this week, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as I continue my discussion of faith and proof with Dr. Mike Farley. That's next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast.